right, well, let's go ahead and read. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members, one of your members, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and let your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us to hear and to respond to your word this morning. Your mercy, Amen. Well, I'm I'm mostly reflecting on on First Corinthians three today, um, which Caden so expertly read, um, and and kind of calling our attention back to this dialogue that Paul has with his church. He begins the book uh, with some reflections on. What it means to be, um, what it means to be a part of the church, and recognizes that for many of the people in Corinth, they had gotten their minds sort of co-opted by the way the world thought, which was that in order to be mature, you essentially had to exhibit and demonstrate the signs of honor and authority and power that existed in the world. One of the ways that that showed up was through following teachers. You follow good teachers. You follow well-known teachers. You follow well-loved teachers. And if you're a teacher, you become a well-known, well-loved, good teacher. But Paul takes that and turns that inside out. And he says it's not about the way that you get honor. It's not about the way that you're received by the world. In fact, it's really about this thing called the cross. The foolishness of the cross, he even says. And then he leans in in chapter 2 to this notion to say, look, our what we call foolishness, God calls wisdom. And what we think is wisdom is really God's 
to God is merely foolishness. Right? So to understand God is to understand things in a profoundly different way. God did not save the world in the way that we would have saved the world. If you remember back to the very beginning, who does he choose? He chooses people who have no earthly hope. Old people, and he promises them children. Right? Unmarried people, who in their righteousness somehow bring forth the Savior of the world. A nation that really, Israel, on their own was of no account. They didn't really have a whole lot to offer. They didn't have anything to go by except God's promise. And it's through them that God saves and redeems. So when Paul comes to Corinth, he has to ask the question, what is the measure of maturity? How do you know at the end of chapter 2 that you have the mind of Christ? This is a phrase that he uses. How do you know that you have the mind of Christ? That you're more than somebody who's trying to parrot the things that exist in the world? How do you know that you have actually been transformed? He says even in Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's something in this belief, there's something in this faith that calls us to submit who we are to God and to be transformed body, soul, strength, mind. The measures that we are so likely to use, and I think Paul very almost ironically uses the language of mind on purpose. Because the Corinthians, the way they saw things, it was all about how intellectual you were, how smart you were, how much you could stand up in front of people and take somebody's argument and turn it on their head. Right? And therefore sort of prove that you were the one who was over. How intellectual. How much had you had personal contact with Jesus? How spiritual were you? How much did your, the way that you present yourself to the world just seem to float two inches above the ground? And sometimes we wrestle with those same questions. How do I know that I'm actually growing in Christ? Maybe you're a year, two years, five years, ten years, forty years into your journey with Christ. How do you know that you're growing? Because in some way, there ought to be this move. We ought not to be exactly the same person that we were a year ago. But we're called to move from glory to glory. We're called to move deeper and deeper into the heart of Jesus. The vision of Christ is not that we come to him, sort of lay out our sins, and then just coast. Are we transformed by the renewing of our minds over and over and over? Paul wants to offer us something here. He wants to offer the Corinthians here, and in fact, I don't know if you heard it in what Caden was reading, you were probably stuck on the reader more than the reading. But here's what he said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. He out and out calls them babies. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. 
For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? These are harsh words. <laughs> in part because what he's unpacking is the truth that the mind of Christ, that fellowship with Christ, does not come as we grow in our understanding of maturity. The mind of Christ comes when we grow in Christ's body. And there's no separation from it. There's no division from it. You can't say, I follow Jesus and I've abandoned his church. If you say that, you don't follow Jesus. You may follow some version of a Jesus of your own understanding, but you don't follow the Christ of the scriptures. You don't follow the Christ who comes in the flesh. This is what's so critical. If Jesus doesn't just come in the flesh one time in the past, but he always meets us in the flesh. He meets us in his body. Christ and the church cannot be set against one another. That doesn't mean Jesus won't judge his church, right? He will. But Christ and the church can't be set off against one another as though we can have salvation in Jesus while abandoning the body that he loves, the body that he creates. There is this ever-deepening incorporation by the Spirit into the Lord. You know what incorporation means, right? We become one body. Corp is like, you know, corpse. To be incorporated is to kind of be folded in. Again and again, we show up into this place and we become a part of that body yet again. It's one more stitch in the thread that, that sews us into the life of Christ. His mind becomes my mind. I see people the way that Jesus sees them. Even when I'm offended by them. Even when they're asking something from me that I don't really want to give them. <laughs> right? I begin to see Jesus the way he sees them. See others the way Jesus sees them. So, yeah, Jesus deals with some of this in the Sermon on the Mount. And the way that he deals with it is this, is this language about anger and murder, right? And the Sermon on the Mount has this wonderful way Jesus is kind of takes a normal everyday thing like anger or lust and he turns it into something that we would never want to be associated with, right? You say, well, it's no big deal. I'm just sort of angry with my brother. The, the language in their day was this kind of, ugh, there was this, this expression, right? Ugh, you sort of have that guttural thing, but it's this word, raka, right? And it's, if you say it to somebody in the right context, you could be sort of put on trial for it, right? It's this insult, rah. And, and, you know, it's, it's Aramaic and Hebrew, so they have that, like, real guttural thing. If you stand too close to raka, you get, like, sprayed. And that's the thought there. Um, so what is it that Jesus says? Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, who says racha, will be liable to the council. Okay? You might get dragged up in front of a bunch of people and get found guilty for saying racha. But whoever says you fool 
be liable for the hell fire. Being fool is, is it almost comes out easier than Raka. How many of you said you fool on your drive here this morning? How many of us have these like outbursts of anger or derision or frustration? And Jesus is taking that and, and he's intensifying our understanding of anger. All that he does in the Sermon on the Mount is to take, we see kind of the full tree in flower with the fruit hanging off of sin, right? You've got this fruit tree, and it's big and it's tall, and it's got leaves and flowers and apples or whatever. And we look at it and we go, that is the fruit of sin. It's murder. It's adultery. That should never happen. And Jesus is looking back at the seed. He's looking back and he's saying, Yes, murder and adultery should not happen, but you let adultery and anger simmer. You gave them time to sprout. And how much more difficult is it to pull out anger when it's a tree than when it's a seed? Focus on those things as seeds and you won't have the problem when they're trees. He points out, Murder, which has its root in anger. Adultery, which has its root in lust. Divorce, which has its root in our own self-righteousness. And here he's talking to the lawyers who allowed this kind of thing to happen because Moses let it happen. Not seeing that, in fact, Moses was... Uh, Moses was letting those things go <laughs> as a boundary. So how instead should we measure maturity? Well, this is where it gets difficult. Paul says to them, we have to understand ourselves in light of the whole congregation. So here he is talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, we don't get to come and say, well, I'm a mature Christian because I've read, I read the whole Bible last year. Right? I'm a mature Christian because I pray up to and sometimes even beyond a half hour a day. I'm a mature Christian because I did my Bible study homework and my Sunday school homework this week, and I came ready, and the blanks were filled in, and I even had personal reflections on the material. And that makes me somehow mature. Meanwhile, Paul's saying, you may be doing all of that stuff, and you may be attached to the teachers of the day who have the status and the authority, but then you show up to church, and what are you doing? Dividing. Separating. Allowing that anger, allowing that lust, allowing that greed, allowing that separatism to simmer. And you're not pulling it out at the roots. Paul actually says, do you know what makes a mature Christian? participation in a mature Christian community. And do you know how I know a, a community is mature? Because there's peace and unity. Because there aren't factions. And that's where I want to go, man, I think he got me there. I think I'm guilty. How deeply 
you know, maybe on the one hand, I'm not out creating factions within the church. Trying to cut people off. Maybe I'm not saying the green and the yellow and the pink dots. <laughs> I'll go to your different corners and let's fight it out. But how much am I actively sharing my life with other people in the congregation? How much am I opening myself up? Not just because I'm an extrovert and I like to you know, see people and know people and have friends and all this sort of stuff. How much am I actually sharing who I am with people who need to know the Lord? How deeply is your life shared with others in the church? How deeply is your spiritual life in need of the church? You know, we do small groups here from time to time. I wonder, is that just kind of like icing on the cake? Or do we have a deep sense that we need one another? That we need to belong to one another? And that when I live my life cut off, from other Christians, including the ones who make me uncomfortable, including the ones that are difficult for me to be around a table with. But I'm not really growing in maturity. I'm not really growing in peace and unity. I was thinking, you know, as a diagnostic tool here, could I go through my week my month, let's say it wasn't my job, okay? <laughs> Could I go through my week, through a month, through a year without the church and have it not make any material difference to my faith? God damn, that's a problem. And I'm wondering what's behind that. And then I read Genesis 4 where the first two brothers in the history of the world <laughs> go to worship God. Cain and Abel. One of them is a farmer. The other one's a shepherd. Um, at prayer a couple nights ago, Miriam was... Miriam, Emmaus likes to pray for like as few, few of you as he can. Miriam prays for everyone and everything she can remember. So we're always kind of like trying to balance these things out in the evening. Um, and uh, told Miriam, she started, what was it? Some inanimate object. She was praying for rocks or something. So you have to pray for people or animals. So she says, okay, sheep. I'm going to pray for sheep. Um, so any sheep out there you've been prayed for, uh, just know that. Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. <laughs> okay. And uh, they bring their offerings to God. The first fruits of their offering, or their, well, of their, of their flock. At least Abel does. He, he brings kind of the best that he has, and Cain brings something. And they go to, to worship God, and we don't know exactly what it all means, <coughs> but it says that God had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have regard for Cain's offering. The Bible I had growing up pictured the fire sort of moving away from Cain's offering. I don't know if that's actually what happened. But in some way, Cain's offering was not accepted. And this causes a kind of anger to spring up, jealousy. 
Cain doesn't get to be at the meal of communion and peace with God. And he simmers in it. He lets it grow. He lets the anger and the division come between him and his brother. And in fact, it, it grows so much and so, and the distance between them grows so far that Cain is actually at a place where he's willing and able to murder his brother. And God speaks directly to him, says, Cain, don't you know that if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this is how sin is. It's how anger is. It's how lust is. It's how greed is. It's how apathy is. Crouching at the door. And the thing for Cain is there was a way back. He didn't have to take this path. This is before he kills his brother. God is saying, look, don't go this way. There's this road that brings you back to me. There's this road that brings you back to communion. There's this road that brings you back to peace and unity. But Cain just lets it sweep him along. He lets it take him down that path so far that he speaks to his brother, calls him out to the field, and kills him there. The first brothers in human history, that relationship ends in murder. The Lord comes to Cain and asks him, where is your brother? And Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for his well-being? Am I responsible for my brother's life? Aren't we all adults? Aren't we grown-ups who have jobs? Is that really on me where, Cain, where Abel is? The answer, of course, is yes. The rhetorical answer here is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are accountable. For this person in your family, yes, you are accountable for this person in your community. We are one another's keeper. Your brother or your sister sitting in the chair next to you or in the row across from you, we belong to one another. This is what we mean in membership when we give ourselves to each other. The faith that we hold is all of our responsibility. The faithfulness to follow Christ and walk with those who are struggling is all of our responsibility. And the sin, I think, that's crouching at the door of our culture is not this thing of like, well, I want to create my own little faction, although that happens in places, or I want to create my own little church, although that happens in places. The sin that crouches at our door is just not caring. Because somebody else's faith is not on us. It's my job to follow Christ. It's my job to do what I can. Meanwhile, they're going, like Jesus says, to the hell of fire. And I'm not saying that we've got to begin to live this life where we're meddling in each other's business all the time, but maybe we ought to be praying for each other. There's so many ways 
for us to check in now. There's so many ways for us to connect and be a part of things. And yet so many of us walk out that door on Sunday morning, and then from that point on, it's just Jesus and me. We have a temptation in our world, and I think it's especially strong in the last couple hundred years. But the temptation is to think that if we get the right system in place, then people will flourish. If we get the right politicians in place, and they're going to put the right rules in place, and because the right rules are in place, everybody will have a good life. But really, my job is just to vote for the right politicians not to be involved in helping other people's lives work well, right? I mean, in this, you, you see this across the Western world. You see this across history. And yet we're living in a time that has killed more people than any other time. We're really good at it. And meanwhile, we kind of demand ideological purity out of everyone. Kill or marginalize or just cancel and reject people who don't pass our purity test. We become less and less willing to listen or be with people who disagree, even as we are responsible for their well-being. You see, for the Corinthians... The temptation was not for them to like abandon their faith. For the Corinthians, the temptation was for them to imagine that they were so high and so mature in their faith that they abandoned other people along the way. That they had grown beyond the experience of those lowly, <laughs> you know, freshman Christians. Paul understood that the Corinthians needed to be re-socialized, retrained, retaught how to receive the truth of the gospel. And so he started with the cross. And he started with the cross not just as a picture of this is where Jesus died to take care of your sins so that you could be forgiven and live forever in heaven. He started with the cross to say, because this is at the center of who we are, we're a people who don't live by the wisdom of the world. Rather, we embrace the foolishness of this device of torture and murder, knowing that somehow our life comes through this. God's wisdom over against the world's wisdom. Somebody whose life I think we maybe ought to talk about a little bit more He's kind of a, well, he died in 1980. He was relatively modern. Lived in El Salvador. And for the last three years of his life was a, was a bishop. Um, Oscar Romero held this tension in his life and in his ministry between a couple things. Uh, the first was the temptation in El Salvador was to use the poor as political pawns, to see them as a mass of people who could be pointed or directed or all this kind of thing. And he just resisted 
that temptation. Instead, he really saw and understood that the church was the locus, was the center, was the place where God made himself manifest. And so, in his ministry, my understanding is he, he lived at a hospital. He lived in a room um, at a hospital with people who were aged. Not a real highfalutin place to live. right? But he spent his life there with people who, from the outside, looked like they were looked like foolishness. But over time, he began to speak up more and more. And if you listen to some of his sermons, you see him focus his attention on his church where there were so many who were suffering profoundly. There was a civil war going on at the time. And he spoke to the poor in his church saying, you are the people through whom Christ is seeking to become manifest in this world. God wants to lift you up and transfigure you just as he lifted up the disciples and the apostles. He has such a high vision of people's life. Sometimes we think that we've got to save people from their material poverty or their mental health issues or their family dynamics before they can actually come to salvation in Christ, before they can actually show forth the light of God's gospel. And I'm here to tell you that's not the case. God wants to take you exactly where you are and begin and continue to transform and renew your mind so that you too can have the mind of Christ. He doesn't have to make you middle class first. He doesn't have to get you to kind of the center of American culture before he finally begins to save you. He's trying to do it now and he's trying to do it with all of us, even now. Do we have that high of an expectation of ourselves? Of each other. But it wasn't just that. Oscar Romero didn't just speak hopefully and honestly to the people in his church. He also spoke, into the, he spoke honestly to the military who was outside, often literally outside the doors of his church with loaded weapons. The night before he died, and he was killed while celebrating the Mass, while worshiping, the, the, the military broke in and killed him in the church. And the night before on the radio, this is what he said. I would like to appeal in a special way to the men of the army, and in particular to the troops of the National Guard, the police, and the garrisons. Brothers, you belong to our own people. You kill your own brother peasants, and in the face of an order to kill that is given by a man, the law of God that says do not kill should prevail. No soldier is obliged to obey an order counter to the law of God. No one has to comply with an immoral law. It is the time now that you recover your conscience and obey its dictates rather than, than the command of sin. Therefore, in the name of God and in the name of this long-suffering people whose laments rise to heaven every day more tumultuous, I beseech you, I beg you, I command you in the name of God, cease the repression. Do you see him holding that tension in his own life? And, and I, my... Prayer is that that's what we begin to do as a people, that we look out at a church that is divided, that we look out at people that want to take their own faith and silo it off and use it for themselves and don't see it connected to other Christians or believers, and we just say, look, I'm uncomfortable with that. That's not who Christ called us to be. That's not who we are in Jesus, and it's not the faith that flows out of Jesus' cross. Paul will go on to say to his church in Corinth, you are God's field, God's building, and God's temple. 
and judgment will come on the one who divides. So my challenge, my warning, my hope, my prayer this morning is that we become a people who have at the very heart of our faith a willingness to suffer so that we might have our own minds renewed in Christ's likeness and that we might bear the burdens of one another. More than ideological purity, more than getting it all right, more than nailing down the proper doctrines or being able to explain or open up every single passage of Scripture, this is at the heart of what we are called to do and who we're called to be. To bear with faith and hope the burden and the difficulty of unity and of peace, knowing and trusting that if we do that faithfully, that we can be a people who confidently say, not only have I borne the cross of Christ, but I trust in his resurrection life and power and hope. Lord Jesus, help us to see that unless we embrace your brokenness, we cannot be made whole. Help us to see and to know that unless we come to you as one, we are still missing out We're still missing out on the fullness of what you have proclaimed and offered to us. And Lord, I know that we have failed. I know that I, in many ways, have failed at this. Show us, Father, that as your church, and especially if we are among those who call ourselves mature, Will you give us to one another as a gift to support, to bear up, to encourage? May we come to this table, Lord, knowing that we need strength to do this well, knowing that we need a power that we don't have in ourselves to follow you and serve you in this way. Lord, may we all be part of this church, this body of Christ coming ever more deeply into the unity that we have and that we know in you. We ask in your name.